0: The file is for personal use to share with friends, family, and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Labrie Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Labrie Fellowship. So welcome to Labrie, if you haven't been here before. My name is Dave, Dave Friedrich, and... Tonight's topic is violence in the Bible, from Joshua to Jesus. So this is a, a two-part series, and yeah, a heavy topic. Not not easy. I, um, I was about to I've I lectured on this before a number of years ago, and I started reading up on it again. I was going to lecture on it about a year ago, and then I just gave up. This <laughs> is heavy, heavy topic, but here I'm. I've I've come to it finally. So tonight is on. Joshua and the Conquest, this is part one of two. So here we're looking at how we can understand violence we find in the scriptures, in the Bible, within its broader cultural context and the scriptural context. Uh, that's going to be our guiding kind of co- question as we look at Joshua and the Conquest, and especially questions surrounding genocide, and a little bit on the nature of scripture, and especially on the goodness of God, I think is what we usually are asking when we read these, these accounts. And then next week we'll be on Jesus and the cross. So noticing the, the similarities, very interesting similarities and significant differences between Joshua and Jesus and their, what they did in the promised land in the same place but many, many thousands of years apart. So that's what we're going to look at next week. And, uh, and we're also going to look at a bit in the book of revelation too. So mainly the gospels, but also a bit in the book of revelation, because there's a lot of war imagery in there. How are we supposed to understand that in light of the old Testament and in light of the gospels? That's going to be something we're going to wrestle with. And then on the, after that, so I'm going to be doing the next two Fridays tonight and the next week, and then Joshua is going to be doing the Friday after that. What's the title, Joshua? Uh, it's
1: okay.
2: an advertised Joshua It's on a flyer. It's on a flyer, flyer outside. outside. <laughs> uh, it's on. It's on, uh, it's on. the phone book. <laughs> Holy Saturday, Jesus' descent, uh, as it's sort of described in the Apostles'
1: Creed. He descended to the dead. Yep. What's going on there?
3: Between the cross and resurrection: Reflections
1: on Jesus' death and our own. Yeah. Boom. I think that's the one.
0: And I think he said all the loose ends. I don't. I can't figure out. You're gonna cover, right? And yeah, after these two. <laughs> it's usually what we do. We're not
4: really.
0: Okay, so we're gonna go jump right in. First, just uh, a little definition on what is violence. This is how I'm using the word. Intentional action that causes significant harm and or death. And in what we're looking at today, especially death. And the intentional action that can come from humans or from God. And um, violence, you know, that... You read history, you read the news. As far back as we know, violence has been around, and there's something in us that says that shouldn't be. It shouldn't be this way, and yet there it is. And not only that, but you opened up the Bible, and there from Genesis to Joshua to Jesus is violence, and we struggle with it. And so what are we to do with it? Now, it's yeah, it's good to know in the Bible at least that a lot of act, a lot of violence is described but not necessarily approved. So just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's being prescribed. It might just be being described. Many times it's being criticized. It's being condemned. But some violence in the Bible is actually commanded by or enacted by God. That's what we're going to be looking at more tonight. So, Joshua and the conquest. I assume maybe many of you know the story from the, from the Hebrew Bible, what we Christians call the Old Testament. In case you don't hear is the story in a nutshell. You have to back up a bit, of course, to Abraham and where God promises Abraham a nation. He says, I'm going to bring a nation out of you and then I'm going to give your nation also a land, the promised land. And so after about 400 years of his uh, people turning into a nation gradually, spending time in Egypt as slaves. They eventually become big enough to be this nation and then enter the promised land through Joshua. He's the one who finally brings the people into the land that was promised to them way back, to Ab- way back with Abraham. And this is the land of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were a people group within the land of Canaan, just one among many but they also can stand for all the people within the land of Canaan. So you say Canaanites, that could mean just that little people group, or it could mean all the people in that land. And that's how it's usually used in the Bible. That's how I'll be using it, just so you know. So they're promised the land, and so what do they do when they come into the land? Well, they don't just become friendly neighbors with the Canaanites. It's a conquest. So the entering the land was both a gift from God, an inheritance, and a conquest, where Canaanites were killed. And so if you read the book of Joshua, you read this. This is Joshua chapter 10 verses 40 to 42. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western foothills, and the mountain slopes, together with all their kings, Remember that. It's usually singled out in Joshua, the kings. He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Joshua subdued them from Kadesh, Barnea to Gaza, and from the whole region of Goshen to Gibeon. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign— because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So again, yeah, entering the land would be a gift and a conquest. And here is what we find most disturbing, I think, when we reread this. Not only does Joshua kill all that breathed in the land, but that this was just as the Lord God's Israel commanded. That's the claim. And that this was successful because the Lord of Israel fought for Israel. The Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So to our modern ears, this sounds like God-directed genocide, if we're honest, when we first hear that. So understandably, this is one of the biggest problems people have with the Old Testament. It's one of the biggest things people bring up and struggle with, understandably. And so this is why a lot of people can't accept that the Old Testament is actual revelation of God. That it truly reveals who God is, what God is like, and what God said. So what this has led people to say is, no, this must just be what people thought God said and did. <laughs> it's people projecting their violent thoughts onto God and and blaming him, so to speak. And I want to say is that's an understandable reaction to I think a superficial maybe reading of the Old Testament. But it's understandable from our time and place, right? We have the Holocaust, we have the Rwandan genocide, and many other type things in our our all too recent history. We also live with the Geneva and Hague Conventions, right? So these these international laws and rules that we would consider to be good, that that puts limits on the means of warfare, and uh, that that are supposed to protect non-combatants, and especially those who are, are vulnerable. Rules that protect people from things like genocide. Rules that would seem on the surface to protect us from things like what we read in the book of Joshua. So I think that's an understandable response when we are unaware of the broader culture and context of Scripture. So what I want to do is help give us the bigger picture. Because this is certainly a place where we can get lost in the details, and the bigger picture is very helpful. It has been very helpful to me. And with this, I'm trying to give, again, credibility um, to the scriptures. And maybe not only in spite of the violent texts we're going to encounter, but maybe even because of them. I've been reading on and off uh, this topic for um, close to a decade. Maybe not, I'm not straight, not every day, all day, but um, <laughs> I've taken breaks because it's a heavy topic. Here are some of the books I've read um, through the years, some more older than others. I really found Christopher Wright's book, The God I Don't Understand, very helpful. It's very accessible, a smaller book dealing with more than just the Canaanites. But he is an Old Testament scholar, something like the, the NT, right, of the Old Testament. And uh, it's him struggling with stuff in the Old Testament in an honest way, but a helpful way. I would recommend him. Paul Copen's books have been quite helpful. Um, I wouldn't always word things the way he does, but I have found a lot of the, the points he makes quite helpful. Um, the... Um, the ones I've read more recently is this one, the skeletons in God's closet. This is by Ryan, Joshua Ryan Butler. He, I think he read, he took about 14 years to write this book. And so he's, he really thought it through, um, has some really helpful stuff and it's written more on a popular level. It's definitely the most fun of all the books I read. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Old Testament scholars aren't usually (laughs) the most entertaining writers, but he is very entertaining, um, very imaginative, helpful in a lot of ways. And then this is the most recent book that I've been waiting for for a long time, and that's kind of why I was waiting to do this lecture. This is by William Webb, and this one's called Bloody, Brutal, and Barbaric, Wrestling with Troubling War Texts. And I'm going to be referring to this one mostly through this lecture, and this comes... Highly recommended from Scott McKnight and Tremper Longman and others who uh, think this is certainly a book to read. You don't necessarily have to agree with all his conclusions or with the extent he maybe makes his arguments for. But, but generally, this is a really helpful book, I think, and it's worth paying attention to. And you'll see maybe throughout the lecture why. <clears throat> so... The bigger picture of the ancient Near East. I'm going to divide this lecture up into two halves. The first half is the bigger picture of the ancient Near East. The second half is the bigger picture of Scripture. <coughs> and each of those are divided up into two. So I'm sticking with the twos. <laughs> the bigger picture of the ancient Near East when it comes to war language and then war practice. Those will be the two things I'll look at. And then with Scripture, I'm going to look at the bigger picture of the nonviolent parts of Scripture and then the bigger picture of the violent parts. So we'll finally get there by the end. Um, but first, the uh, the bigger picture of of war language. And this is uh, this is really the language of hyperbole, exaggeration, and and we'll see in what ways. <clears throat> So really, what happened at this time? If if you if you use language like all, total, everything that breathed, every man, woman, and child, what you meant was a decisive victory, not that literally every breathing thing was no more longer living. That's that's the main point here. So this is um, from Kenneth Kitchen. He is uh, a very recognized Old Testament scholar. Times Magazine called him the, the very architect of Egyptian chronology. He, he really knows what he's talking about when it comes to the Old Testament. And here's what he says in his book on the reliability of the Old Testament. He's also an evangelical. Um, but this is what he says. And he's, he's talking here. He's coming out of talking about Joshua and all this everything, all that breathed, every man, woman, and child kind of language. And he says, the type of rhetoric in question here was a regular feature of military reports in the second and first millennia, as others have made clear. In the later 15th century, Tutmosis III could boast, quote, the numerous army of Mitanni was overthrown within the hour, annihilated totally, like those now non-existent, now non-existent. Sorry, whereas in fact, the forces of Mitanni lived to fight many another day in the fifteenth and fourteenth centuries. Some centuries later, about eight forty to eight thirty, Mesha, king of Moab, could boast that quote, Israel has utterly perished for always." A rather premature judgment at that date, by over a century. <laughs> and so on. Add. It is in this frame of reference that the Joshua rhetoric must be understood. So this is a guy who knows the ancient Near East and the the rhetoric of that time. And he says, this is exactly what we're seeing in the book, say, of Joshua. But not just within there, but in other places. And you could um, give many examples. I'm just going to give this one other example. And this is from... uh, here, King Seti I, and he's talking about um, coming back, in this, in this great victory, and even you could just see here the, the bloodthirstiness, this, the bloodthirstiness that's claimed in the Bible is actually much more what you see in the ancient Near East. Lo, as for the good God, he rejoices to begin battle, he is delighted to enter into it. His heart is satisfied at seeing blood. He cuts off the heads of the rebellious hearted. He loves an hour of battle, more than a day of rejoicing. His majesty slays them at one time. He leaves not a limb, that is, an heir among them. And he that escapes his hand, as a living captive, is carried off to Egypt. So, you see there, he wipes them out, there's not a limb left, and yet there's these people escaping, in the same sentence. So that helps you see that the, the all-encompassing language wasn't always understood, wasn't seen as a contradiction. Oh wait, he said everybody, and then there's all these people that escape. This would have been understood language. <clears throat> and then what we do is we see this with the Israelites, or with um, what we see in the book of Joshua. So read this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 7. So this is the law of Moses. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, so wipe out, drive out, these are usually interchangeable a lot of the times. Drive out is actually the most common phrase. The Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, and so on. seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord, your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must totally destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord, your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes completely destroy them the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So remember this, this is the command of God, keep this in your mind, this totalizing language. But this is exactly what Joshua, the book of Joshua, claims that Joshua did. So Joshua subdued the whole region, including the hill country, the Negev, the western hills, this is what we read earlier, all the kings, all their lands, everything that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. So by the end of the book, you read in Joshua, just at least a superficial reading, you're like, it sounds like he has conquered the whole land and wiped out all the people, and there's nobody left standing. And again, this is as the Lord commanded. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all the Lord commanded Moses. Remember those things I just quoted you in the law, saying Joshua did it all. Nothing left undone. And then you read this in the very next book. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? (laughs) The Canaanites are still there. (laughs) Lots of them. All over the place. They're not all wiped out. There's plenty of Canaanites around to fight. And this isn't just in the book of Judges that you read, but it's also, if you're paying attention, it's there within the book of Joshua as well. So even here, you can see, when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, you see the same thing of the King Seti quote I gave you, he wiped them all out, and when the remnant went somewhere else, (laughs) they went after them. So all wiped out didn't mean everybody. And there's plenty of more of, um, of references. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Israel. The Jebusites eventually just become incorporated into the people of God. Canaanites that they were, that God said to wipe out totally. As well as Joshua 16. And even here, this is Joshua's farewell speech. Where he says, remember how I have allotted an inheritance for your tribes, all the land of the nations that remained, the nations that I conquered between the Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea in the West. The Lord your God himself will push them out for your namesake. He will drive them out before you and will take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Even there in the book of Joshua, it's assumed not all the Canaanites were wiped out. So all that breathed didn't mean every living thing. Um, and so if Joshua did exactly what God commanded and God said, and then Moses said, uh, sorry, God said to Moses, Moses said to Joshua, Joshua did it all, then it must have meant what God said didn't mean everything. If Joshua did exactly what God said he should do, if that makes sense. So, what we can say is, at the very least, what, the, what this language means is a, a decisive defeat. Especially of the king, many times the king's family, and the resisting army, at the very least. And what this is like, it's like um, listening to the sports channel, versus listening to documentaries. So, it's like listening to ESPN versus PBS. If you're thinking of a documentary, Um, so if you've ever listened to sports commentators, or if you've ever played sports, when you really beat somebody, what do you say? Killed them, them, annihilated them, wiped them out. Yeah, shut them down. We decimated them. And you know, if you don't play sports or listen to sports, you know, you might need a translator to tell you they didn't mean literally wipe them out. Of course, that's not an exact parallel, but that's something like what's happening. That's, that language, that way of talking, that war language, is still present um, to us uh, with us today. And so it's kind of like when you're reading Joshua, you got to figure out when, when are you watching the sports channel and when are you watching the documentary channel. Joshua is mostly the sports channel, <laughs> and you go to Judges, and it's a little more like the documentary channel but it too has um, some of the sports channel too. So if total kill didn't happen, um, if this has meant a decisive victory, then who actually was killed and who wasn't? Well, we don't know for sure, of course, because we weren't there, and this happened a long time ago. And so a lot of this is trying to put together pieces of the puzzle and, and do some educated guessing. But here, this comes from bloody... Brutal and Barbaric, William Webb's book. Here's the three kind of scenarios he gives. So the most probable and strategic enemy killed in holy war would have been the king and his general. In all likelihood, the males, but sometimes the females. This was the common practice back then. So the, the king was typically seen as representing the people. You kill the king, it's like you're killing the people. Um, And at this time, kings weren't, you know, these peaceful people sitting on thrones just with people serving them. They were more like warlords. They were the main military leaders of their people, and they went out to war. You read that when David, you know, it says David was hanging around and got into trouble when kings went out to war. That was the way of kings back then. And so that's why when you read Joshua, it mentions the king's always, almost always. He went and he, he did battle. He had decisive victory and he killed the kings. And that's why when Saul was told to kill all the Amalekites, everything that breathed, man, woman, and child, he got into trouble, not because he didn't kill all the children. And there was plenty of Amalekites who went on living. He was What was singled out was the king. He didn't kill the king. That's what you're supposed to do to, to win the victory. So that's the most... Probable. Next in probability terms of probability would be the slaughter of the army. Um, but generally that would be those who would continue to resist. And then the killing of large numbers of the non-military general population was the least likely uh, in this. Remembering, again, every man, woman, and child, everything that breathed, that's the, this totalizing language. It's part of military victory language. So this, along with other points I'm going to make later, is going to hopefully demonstrate why this wasn't genocide. This wasn't genocide. What this takes us to next is the bigger picture of war practice in the ancient Near East. And so what I'm going to say here, I'm going to say, I'm going to list some really terrible things. So if you are very sensitive to to bloody things, terrible things, which we all should be. Um, You might want to plug your ears or step out for a minute, that'd be fine, but for about two minutes I'm just going to list and read the common war practices going on in the ancient Near East, so you get a sense of the culture that God was bringing his people up in, and giving them a law in, and that's going to be really important for later, for what I'm going to say right near the end. So this is what people would do, other nations would do for war. Again, this is going to get graphic. But they would strip captives naked and parade them around with shaved genitals. They would have these excruciating painful rope bindings they would put behind their, their backs that dislocated and shattered joints. They mutilated, often live, captives cutting off the tongue, toes, noses, genitals, hands, feet, leg, head, and more. They bind, They blinded the prisoners. They displayed body parts. Stacking piles of head at the city gate, or piling up hands and penises, capturing whole communities and selling them off on the slave market, no burial of the dead, digging up ancestral graves and scattering the bones. It's terrible. Raping young women and girls as part of the conquest, slicing pregnant women open, killing the unborn, impaling live victims on stakes, pushing through their bodies. Flailing them alive, cutting off their skin while they're still alive to kill them. <clears throat> Basically, what they did was torture and extreme humiliation. This was part of war practice in the ancient Near East. They didn't just go in and kill people a quick death by the sword, it was torture, it was rape, it was humiliation, bringing up people's bones, the ancestors right before them. It's terrible. So what you see, you never see any of this, not in the commandments of God, in the law. Nothing like this. This is totally absent. There is no torture in in Israel's war practices that God commands them to do. That's totally absent. There is no rape ever promoted or talked about or commanded or celebrated. It's only seen with shame, this kind of thing. We'll talk a bit more about that later. But this is what... William Webb says about the practices of, of Israel's war practices, that they would have been considered mild or comparatively moderate within this larger context. So basically, if you were going to go and and lose in battle to somebody, there's probably no one you would want to lose to more than Israel <laughs> because of what how they practiced war. They didn't do this kind of thing. I mean, it was so bad. Men would kill their wives if they knew this was coming.
1: Because
0: mm-hmm. they thought that would be better than what's going to happen to them. This is the kind of time they were living in. This is what was going on. You can see this. there, And there was no better place to be in Israel than to be in Israel if you were a woman or if you were a slave. And we're going to talk more about that later at the end. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> so this brings us to the bigger picture of the Bible. So here we're going to look at the non-violent parts, and then we're going to look at the violent parts. So I'm just going to kind of go through the Bible a bit from the beginning of the Bible and spend a bit of time at the conquest, but also uh, something a bit at the end of the Bible, which will take us more into next week. But first of all, creation. This is maybe, you just read the creation, the Genesis story, and It's not a big deal to you that there's no violent conflict going on with God when he creates the world. But that was a common thing going on in the creation myths at that time. The gods or the God would be in violent conflict with the other gods or with something else. And out of that conflict came the created order. That's totally absent in Genesis. God creates by his non-violent word. Let there be... And the first mention of any violence is by a human. It's the murder of Abel by Cain. Not, there's no violence from God. Um, not in the beginning. <clears throat> we can move to the, uh, the John 3.16 of the Old Testament, or the Gospel of the Old Testament in a nutshell. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. This is really what God is up to. In the Old Testament, even with all the judgments going on, it's good to keep this in mind. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at this point, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land that I will show you. And like I said earlier, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So if you're reading Genesis, though, this comes right after Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis chapter 10, there's a list of the nations, the known nations at that time. And these were, you know, all the ones they knew. But among them were Assyria, Babylon, the two nations that are eventually going to kick Israel out of the land like, like they were Canaanites. And then, uh, and then the people of Canaan are mentioned in this table, the people who Joshua is going to go to battle with. And then, so yeah, uh, this is told that God's going to bless all the nations through Abraham. That would include the Canaanite nation and the people of Canaan. Of course, there's the warning, whoever curses you, I will curse. But the emphasis here, the majority of the wording, is on blessing, that this is God's overriding purpose and plan. Uh, There is a way to be cursed, and that continues on into the New Testament. You can come under the judgment of God if you turn from his mercy, but but that's not his preference. (laughs) This is what he's after, even in the Old Testament. And so it's, yeah, it's important to know the necessary momentary judgment of a nation doesn't mean that nation is therefore excluded from salvation, just outright. Well, all Canaanites now are lost. No Canaanites could ever be saved, because we'll see the story of Rahab. (laughs) Um, So this is the Canaanite prostitute. Um, And she's the one, of course, who helped the Hebrews, the spies, Protected them. So, in a sense, she's in the language of Abraham, his covenant, she blessed the people of God and then received a blessing. She was spared, she and her whole household. <clears throat> and so, what's interesting is the book of Joshua, the book of conquest, the very first story is not about a conquest, it's about a conversion of a Canaanite <laughs> into the people of God. Mm-hmm. And it's huge, it's big in its uh, description, its length, its place, right at the very beginning. And of course, in the New Testament, she's mentioned three times, New Testament twice, as a model of faith. She's upheld as a model of faith. And then once she's mentioned, of course, in the genealogy of Jesus. She makes it, the Canaanite prostitute (laughs) makes it into the genealogy of Jesus, right off the bat. So, you know, grace and all this in the nations, that's not just in the New Testament. The clues are right there. How many other Rahabs might there have been? We don't know. Um, But maybe this is a clue for us to be like, there could have been more. The next thing is the temple. So the temple is a place where heaven and earth overlap. This is where God uh, touches down onto the earth, this is where he makes his dwelling. So the temple is a holy place. It's very important what is the temple made like, and what is the artwork, and who makes it. So first, who makes it? Not David. Because he was a warlord, exactly. That's exactly the reason. So he, he's basically told, he said, I had it in my heart to build this house, of course. I want to be in the house of God. I want to build the house of God. But he was told, the word of the Lord came to him and said, not you. You've shed too much blood before God. You're a warrior, and I don't want you to build my temple. And who does he want to build? He wants his son to build it, and his son's name is Solomon, which is a, a version of shalom, peace. And that's the description. He wants this temple to be a temple of peace. So he's the creator who doesn't create without, he creates without violence, and when he comes to build his temple, he doesn't want a warrior to build it. And there's no war art. So if you read how the temple was built in the war art, there's there's things from uh, nature in there, but there's no victory battles painted in there, which was very common in the temples of the ancient Near East their gods were bloodthirsty as we read earlier and so they they loved the blood and the guts and that's why they sacrificed their children to the gods they thought well this is what the gods love and so we'll give it to them and they'll they'll do us a favor and uh, but none of that is allowed and done in the in the temple of Yahweh that's huge it really stands out <clears throat> This is interesting. No weapons of mass destruction. (laughs) Now, you know, we think of maybe big bombs and stuff. They didn't have that back then. For them, the weapons of mass destruction were horses and chariots. And so they weren't allowed, the kings were were prohibited from acquiring a ton of chariots and war horses. They were prohibited from acquiring weapons of mass destruction at that time. And so that is even. In when sometimes they were, they were called to kill the other war horses of the other army, not because they were against the animals, but it was because they weren't supposed to acquire those. The temptation would be to take those and to build up a huge army for themselves and become a warlord just like all the other nations. You have passages like this that talk about God's preference. His preference is not to kill people. And wipe them out. His preference is that they would turn and live. This is what Ezekiel says. And now this is actually talking about Israel. And God speaking to Israel. Do you think I want you to die? No. I would rather that you would turn and live. Turn from your evil ways and live. And so we can assume this is his heart not just for Israel. But for anybody. This gets repeated in different ways in the New Testament. God's desire is for everyone to be saved. It's the the Abraham passage, (laughs) that's God's heart, that's what he's after in the Old Testament and that's what gets fulfilled in the New Testament with Jesus. So we've got God's preference and we've got God's promise here when it comes to violence. This is beautiful. This is in the Old Testament, remember that. It says of God, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Along for that day. (laughs) But this is turning weapons into gardening tools. It's like taking a nuclear bomb and figuring out how to to undo climate change with that. (laughs) to to save our polluted earth that we've messed up. So this is God's promise. Next week, we're going to look at the New Testament. And so we're going to move from seeing how Joshua comes into the land and imposes violence. I don't think it was wrong, and I'm going to talk about why... Oh, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think violence is only and always wrong. I think there's a legitimate place for that, for violence. Um, but in the New Testament, we're going to see Jesus entering the land and not imposing violence, him and his disciples, but rather the opposite. They receive violence as they conquer the land for the kingdom. That's a striking difference. It's something to pay attention to. <clears throat> So with this, note the kindness and the severity of God. This is what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty-two. This is something I would have trying to do in this um, in this last section. Is we've been looking at the kindness of God, and now we're going to look at the severity of God. And I wouldn't say, well, here's the bright side and here's the dark side of God. <laughs> That's maybe how some of us see it. These are both good things from God. There's times when we when things require the severity of God when things are really wicked and out of control. God needs to come in with his severity. Um, that's not his preference. He would prefer, again, repentance and faith and life. But sometimes that, things, things go too far. <clears throat> so this is moving us into the last section now, the bigger picture of the violent parts of the Bible and specifically those in, commanded and enacted by God, and of course specifically with the conquest. And so what's the bigger picture here? Uh, the bigger picture here is that this is not genocide, but this is judgment on sin, on wickedness. It's It's judgment on idolatry and sin in the land. It's never kill the Canaanites just because they're Canaanites and they got Canaanite blood in their veins. Otherwise, Rahab would never make sense. <laughs> it's a story right at the beginning to show you this is not about ethnicity. It's about the wicked practices that were going on um, that they were doing that came to such a level it needed to be stopped and judged. And more than that, there was more going on than just that, but that's one of the things that's mentioned. So back in Genesis chapter 15, again, God talking to Abraham and telling him what's to come and why there's going to be this long wait for his descendants to get into the land. So the Lord said to him, know that, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation that serves, they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites, one of the Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. So four generations, that, that either just means another way of saying 400 years, because a generation would be when you have a child, and Abraham had a child at 100 years old, so it could be that's what was being referred to in the four generations, or it could be 400 generations plus, uh, or 400 years plus another four generations, so just over 400 years maybe. Whatever it is, at least 400 years we're going to have to transpire until his descendants could come into the land. Why? Because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Their sin wasn't bad enough to be judged. In other words, it seems to be the implication. For him, just to, for God to go in there, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't bad enough. Is what it seems to be saying. <clears throat> we don't know necessarily all the things. There's a list that we we get of the different things the Canaanites were doing. That could just be some a sampling of the different kinds of things. There, there was all kinds of sexual perversion. There were social injustice. And the thing that's singled out the most is child sacrifice. That's that's brought out the most. But it's not because the Israelites were superior either. This is not about racial superiority. God makes clear. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land. But on account of the wickedness of these nations. That the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what... He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So again, they're not presented as a superior race. Another reason why this is not about genocide. But it's about real wickedness. So that he says, don't, be beware. This is what they do. This is how they serve their gods. They sacrifice their children to them. Don't do that. You need to defeat them in such a way, and you need to rid the... T- this place of their idolatry, because this is the kind of thing they do with their gods. So, in in the Bible, wickedness is always tied to idolatry, back and forth. If you don't serve the true living God, you're going to express it in some kind of wickedness. And in this wickedness was the the, um, the sacrificing of of their own children in the fire. <clears throat> So this is not genocide. So we can think of maybe Hitler and the Jews, the Nazi regime and the Jews. And I think you first read Joshua and you think, oh, this is about Joshua being like Hitler and going in and exterminating a race. Well, as you read, you realize, no, it's actually the flip of that. It's more like Joshua was like the allied forces coming in to bring an end. To Hitler and the Nazi regime, because of what they were doing in Europe and to the Jews, and so they were going to annihilate them in a sense, not they were going to wipe out the German people, but they were going to bring the Nazi regime to an end, and that 's something of what we can see maybe that 's more similar to what Joshua is doing um, than I think is usually understood <clears throat> So the um, the bigger picture here is God judging the land, but God coming to the land. So we mentioned the temple. God's coming to live and dwell in this land. And the land here is um, is a type of Eden. It's like the new Eden. And so what you have is when God comes and he's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, everything is as it should be. There's no idolatry going on. There's no wickedness at this point. And this is what God is coming to reestablish. He's going he's gonna to do this again in the land of Canaan. And so what that means is idols and idolatry and wickedness must go. There's no place for that. And there's no place for those who want to cling on to those things. So they must either be brought to an end or driven out. And actually drive out is the more common language than wipe out. It's kind of in- interchangeable. And so what we can see here, this is what Webb makes a distinction here, he he talks about ethnic Canaanites, which is what we've been talking about up to this point, and then literary Canaanites. So Adam and Eve would be literary Canaanites. They were in the land of Eden, the land of promise, so to speak, and when they disobeyed God, they were driven out, right? Um, The Canaanites, they're in the new Eden, (laughs) And there's no place for idolatry and wickedness in the new Eden. So that must be driven out. So that's the the Canaanites. But then later on, Israel is in the land and they start doing the exact same thing that the Canaanites were doing, even including child sacrifice. And so what happens? God brings the same language to them. I'm going to wipe you out and I'm going to drive you out. And that's what he does twice. First, the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. So they're literary Canaanites. And then in the New Testament, you get new literary Canaanites, which we'll see. And I'll talk about more. You'll see this driving out language with Jesus. And there's some surprising twists and turns there that we'll, we'll pay attention to that are, are really significant. So what we do is we'll back up now and go back to what was the, um, the conquest. Well, it was a number of things, right? This was God giving Abraham a land. It was God setting up his dwelling place with his people. It was God judging the Canaanites for their idolatry and their wickedness. <clears throat> and so when you read the New Testament, this is how it describes these kinds of things. If you... If you read a lot of different passages. So I'm going to give you just a a sampling. And so this comes with this comes from Jude five, verses five to seven. Though you already know all of this, maybe we don't, (laughs) I want to remind you that the Lord that, that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not, did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as, as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. You can see these, these stories, these severe stories in the Old Testament serve as an example of the coming judgment, the coming judgment day. This is something that's been called intrusion ethics, and something of the future judgment is breaking into or being expressed in some degree in the present, serving as an example of what's to come. So the Bible says this in a variety of ways. This comes from Second Peter 2, 4-9. to For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, if he rescued Lot, and so on and so on, so did you catch there that he made them an example um, of what is going to happen to the ungodly? So these these judgments that we read about in the Old Testament give some kind of expression of what's coming. And then Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, and he's talking this time about Israel and God judging Israel, not the Canaanites, in in the wilderness and how some of them perished in there. And he says, now these things happened as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on who the culmination of the ages has come. So you see that that pattern, that reference. So they're they're examples of the final judgment, but it's really important to keep in mind they are not the final judgment. <laughs> that has not happened yet. That is, to come, even for all these people who experienced this judgment in the Old Testament. And so uh, I want to give you one more passage along this line. This is Jesus speaking in the Gospel of Matthew. And he says this, some really interesting things here. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these are Canaanite places, it seems almost certainly he's referring to the conquest and the judgment that came upon them, they would certainly have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable, tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And then he goes on to say the same things for Capernaum in relation to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. But do you see that? Yeah. the day of ju- the, Their judgment day hasn't happened fully. They had an expression of it, something, an example of it, but it wasn't the judgment day. Otherwise, they wouldn't have to um, go through the judgment day again. It would be all over for them. And it says they're going to have a better time. They're going to have it easier on judgment day than the people that Jesus was pre- preaching to in the towns that he was going to and didn't repent when he did his miracles. So not the final judgment. So this is where what I'm going to say next is, is more tentative, um, but it's something to consider. And this is what William Wedg brings out in his books. But if these examples in the Old Testament of judgment were not God's perfect final judgment that's coming but rather sufficient examples of um could it be that some of what god commanded israel to do in its war practices maybe even in the conquest maybe certain aspects were not his ideal but what was appropriate for the barbaric times in which they lived to sufficiently judge um and to sufficiently give an example of judgment for us, and to accomplish his purposes for them and for us. So, let me explain a little more. So, Marty made a point a few weeks ago of um, Jesus, when he was talking about divorce in the New Testament, Mm -hmm. and how he said this, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because why? Your hearts were hard. (laughs) But this was not this way it was not this way from the beginning. Meaning divorce is not God's ideal. (laughs) And so this is Trumper Longman talks about this as the edenic ideal um, that God couldn't necessarily fully put forward in the law because of the hardness of people's hearts. If that makes sense. So God is taking seriously a fallen world a fallen reality, and so he has to give a law to them that's realistic, based on the fallenness that we find ourselves in. This is at least one example where it is, and if it's happened here in the, in the context of divorce and marriage, could it not be also true that this happens in other places in the law? So, uh, for example, the way women and slaves were treated in the Old Testament law, If you compare that to how the ancient Near Eastern peoples were treating women and slaves, it's amazing. There's no better place to be for a woman or a slave than in Israel. They had the best laws for women and slaves, comparatively. But as we look back and we look at how women were treated compared to men or how slaves were treated compared to free people, we'd say, wait, it's not quite fair at points. There's not the same exact treatment. Um, so what this is what William Webb does in one of his earlier books he says well maybe what was happening here is God was giving a law that they could handle at their time that was as far as they could go but as far from say Paul's there's neither male nor female uh, nor slave nor free they weren't ready for that <clears throat> maybe that's the reason and by the time we get to the New Testament we're ready to hear that and then centuries later we're ready to bring down the the institution of slavery altogether, and give men, women, and children all equal rights um, in society. But the seed was there. Well, the beginning was in the Old Testament. And the real seed was Paul saying that phrase, which I find funny that people think he's anti-women, but <laughs> there's nothing more powerful, I think, than that phrase for Western culture to to give women equal rights. that came from Paul, um, but of course, by the Holy Spirit. And... Um, and the gospel of Jesus. But, but if that's true, um, and again, he has a whole... He, his books are worth looking at, and especially in, in relation to homosexuality, because he says it's, it's important to look at where was the culture at and where did it go in the Bible. And that will give you a clue as to where the Bible is standing on things. So when it came, say, to homosexual practice, the culture was much more loose when it came to homosexual practice and the bible is much more strict so it went the opposite way and that not that it was against people just who had who had fallen desires but the act of homosexual practice was prohibited but when it came to women and slaves it went the opposite direction as culture and it gave them more freedom <clears throat> so if that was happening in in those areas then couldn't that happen also maybe in some of the practices of war that Israel was commanded by God to do. And so with this, I'm going to give you one example, which actually brings together both uh, how women were treated and how war was practiced. So this is a commandment, this is a stipulation on war, basically, on how to practice war. So I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to, again, remind you of the, the culture in which this was said, and so how this would have stood out. And then yet also how we react to it. So it says this, When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman, and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife, bring her into your home, and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured after she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. So just backing up, now remember, the common practice in the ancient Near East was, was battlefield rape, they called it. So after you would beat the other nation, you would rape their women, sometimes young girls, on the battlefield to totally humiliate them. Again, why men would kill their wives before something like that would happen. So this stands out in total contrast to anything like that in the ancient Near East. There's nothing like this in the ancient Near East. For a man man to see a woman and not rape her, but actually give her 30 days to mourn, and be her wife, not just use her for sex, but become her husband. And, and these were mourning clothes. This was a way to grieve and her, for a way, for her really to change her identity. She was going to be uh, becoming part of Israel. Uh, so in that sense, you can see, wow, that's an, it's an amazing move. And maybe this is all that could be expected of people at this time, is my guess. But as we look back, we think, wait a sec, uh, where's the voice of the woman in this? Where Does she get a say? That doesn't seem quite fair. Should we try to put this into the Geneva Convention and argue for this? Mm-hmm. Probably not, right? Um, I wouldn't want to. I don't, think, I don't think that was what was going on. I think what was happening is God was accommodating to the times... To the hardnesses of their hearts, to the practices, and maybe this is this is the best that could be expected at this time. And now we we come a long way to um, to where yeah we have there's neither male nor female and equal rights, and we go we go beyond this. Um, But it's interesting to to note that um, the person who. who started the Red Cross and whose idea was the uh, the Geneva Convention, actually became the Geneva Convention was a Christian, or at least he he had a Christian background at the very least. Um, but I wonder if it's because of that. Maybe did he have a sense of what God was doing in Scripture um, and tried to do something similar with the Geneva Conventions? And and maybe our job is to take them further, to learn from the Bible in this. And so maybe our maybe this is an example for us to say we shouldn't expect the ideal from people immediately right away. Is that what God did for us? Both on an individual level, does he expect us to be perfect as soon as we become a Christian, but maybe also culturally over time. So would you expect people who may say never heard of the gospel in their country, would you expect the same thing from them as a new Christian, as you would from... Someone from the U.S. who's had Christianity in the culture for a long time—should um, we not think about where people are coming from and what would be a good incremental step for them towards the the, the gospel ideal? Uh, I think that even—I think Marty again was saying this last week when we were talking about politics and uh, we're dealing with imperfect systems, even God's law wasn't perfect in that sense. And so how much less are the the politics of our day? And so when we're trying to vote, you know, well, we might just have to vote in a way that we think will be an incremental step towards what we think is good and true according to God's ways. And then as we can do that, as we do that, we're also hoping in the final judgment, right? When when God will bring ultimately an end to all violence, no more war. When he finally turns the the swords into gardening tools, and that's it. That's when that's the case. When um, when he when he um, turns every wrong into right. When um, when every person who who got a raw deal is treated appropriately, and in, and those who got off the hook are addressed as well. Uh, and then even better. To let those off the hook who follow Christ, um, and and trust Him, that's what's coming, um, and that's what we're going to see in, in next week. That was a lot of ground. That was uh, a lot of stuff to to take in. Uh, those are some things that I found helpful in in my journey. That's not everything. It was really hard <laughs> to know what to offer you and how much to to explain things and um but hopefully that was clear, but if not, this is the time to to help get some clarity. Can you sure can.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I'll be up honest up front. I'm so I'm a peacemaker. At, at heart, I hate conflict, I hate violence, and so this, this is a real um, hard thing for me to enter and to talk about, um, but I have found it a helpful journey. I find when, when you go into the harder places of scripture, um, if you are persevering, you ask for grace from God, he gives you things that uh, you weren't expecting, and there's treasures, all kinds of treasures along the way. But with that, yeah, let's uh, let's get into a discussion. Yes.
1: Um. So, if the Israelites' war practices
0: were, even though they were much better than the rest of the culture, but they still weren't God's ideal, can we use those examples to say of post-Christians who believe in non-resistance and like don't believe in any type of violence, like, is is that inaccurate to use
1: those Old Testament examples if
0: that's not God's ideal? Or, like, can those be used to post that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to get into that a bit more next week. I I mean, I still think, I'm and I respect passivism, and I think we should aim for the least amount of violence as possible. But in a broken, fallen world, uh, you need a police force. You need a military. And so... That's my conviction. I think Paul says that, you know, he he talks about the authorities being servants of God and that they don't bear the sword for no reason. So get that double negative there. <laughs> uh but you know, yeah, that's um as I'm I I'm currently I was a paramedic for about 5 years and I would always work in conjunction with the fire or the police department. I worked in a low income area and you know, there'd be a shooting and we're not going anywhere near there until the police take care of things. <laughs> and I was uh, so grateful for the police many times. And they, uh, of course, yeah, they can abuse their power, but that doesn't mean we don't need them. We need we need police officers. So, and I think what we'll see, yeah, next week I'll show is that you see the sword slowly coming out of the hands of the people of God. Um, not that you can't be in in the the police force as a Christian, but. But as the main bearers of the sword, it shouldn't be the church. The church shouldn't be holding up the sword. Whenever we've done that, that's been a turn-off to people of the faith, and uh, understandably so. But the, you see through through the history of Israel, even, eventually the government is given the sword. Um, but I'll get more into that next week, if you're interested, coming back. <laughs> Marty?
2: I just have a question about, about all the scholarship. Um, I mean, when Dick was at seminary, we were, we were made familiar with... Um, the intrusion ethics idea. Yep. Know, that, um, but how much of this stuff you talked about is, is relatively new, scholarship, the work on the ancient Near East, the, I mean, just, I found it really helpful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and I just wonder how much of that is, has been around for a long time, hidden in dusty old books that most of us don't know about, or how much of it is really quite new? Uh,
0: yeah, I think it's the arguments have been there for a while, but they've become more and more grounded in in history and more and more evidence mm-hmm. and so that's the, this guy uh william webb i mean he's been working on this book for 14 years mm-hmm. and he brought an old testament scholar in at the, another one in about halfway through mm-hmm. but um yeah i mean he's drawing on countless resources i mean you see his bibliography yeah. it's huge but kitchen yeah i mean that's that book's been around for a little while at least um who made that same point yeah. and, but i
2: so appreciate um um, the the apologetics nature of well, certainly of your your talk and your perspective which sounds like is true in a lot of these I mean it, the idea I've, I'm an Old Testament scholar many years ago at Westminster Seminary when I raised some of the apologetics questions raised in the Old Testament you know, what do you do with this how do you handle this I mean my niece has said to me I can't believe in a God who's less moral than I am because of looking at these texts yeah. and this professor just said Oh, I just live in the Old Testament, yeah. You know, I mean, he just would not engage with mm. the, these are major apologetic major yeah. issues of why people aren't Christians. Why they're not. Yeah. Why my niece is not a Christian. Why she's chucked it. So I really appreciate that um you know the the dealing with this as as something that's that's a, a major stumbling block for faith today. And yeah. I'm glad thankful for the books that are out there yeah there's a there's
0: plenty of yeah all these books are great the John Walton book is my least favorite probably I've liked his books generally, okay. but his book on yeah his arguments I just didn't appreciate okay. and others don't either <laughs> which he wrote it with his son, and I don't know if it was more his son than him in that one because um, generally I've liked his books but uh, yeah, some of his arguments, I, I just don't think hold. But, uh, but everything else has been super helpful. Really great. Yeah. You. Yeah, I mean, especially now, I think a lot of people are just unhitching. Was that the phrase recently of, yeah. from the Old Testament? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I can't. You know, when Jesus said, "I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it." And whoever makes least of the little, you know, is least in the kingdom, the least of the commands. So my goal has always been, you know, to hold on to the Old Testament. That's, that was Jesus' view. And so what, how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? That's been my constant question. And so asking, you know, of course we know the, the sacrificial system, you know, God, God adopted the sacrificial system of the time, but gave it a new meaning. So like, Back in the day, the sacrificial system was people just, you know, I'm going to offer you what I think is the right sacrifice. And in the Old Testament, God determines the sacrifice. He tells exactly what it's to be. And then eventually, he gives the sacrifice. So you can see the movement there even. And then, of course, we don't need sacrifice anymore. Jesus is. Um, but its I always wonder, like, what's the same with themes in the Old Testament and what changes? And And sometimes there's a stop, and sometimes there's a continuity, and... And you gotta pay attention. Uh and it's 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 fun to watch what what those different changes are. Um they're significant. Uh you touched on us a little bit, but
4: did your research touch on the difference in violence in Joshua versus judges?
0: No. So, yeah. I think this was um Joshua Butler's I think he was the one I think he might even be the one who who put me onto like, the sports channel versus the, mm-hmm. the documentary. So he was like, Joshua is like the sports channel, and Judges is more like uh, the documentary. I don't know if it's that stark. I think it's still um, a little bit of both in both. But... Um, so it's
1: pretty much
3: like the sports.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, like, the thing about the bear and the lion, and, I mean... What's, is that in Judges? I think it's in Judges. Yeah. Somebody, the prophet who runs into a bear and or For lion people, like, and tears them into pieces. And, oh yeah. I mean, that those that sound like the sports channel to me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is good to know. Yeah. What yeah? <laughs> what channel are we watching? Yeah. yeah. And you have yeah, Ben. Just response
3: to that. Like I was wondering whether uh, it would be fair to say that a lot of the violence described uh-huh. in, the, in the book of Judges is so. descriptive. Yeah. Uh, this is just an account of what happened. And it's not saying this is great. Uh, in fact, it says the, re- you know, the reason this happened is that, is that everybody was right in their own eyes. Except and so it's it's a, it's a sign of people's basic rejection of God just playing out. Um, it's not God commanding, go do this. right? And so th- I think the reason why I think for a lot of people accounts of the conquest are more disturbing than judges in a sense it seems to be God saying go do this right yeah, exactly. as opposed to it's almost like God is standing standing back and watching what happens when people are just making the rules for themselves and that is just described Yeah. in all of its horror um, yeah I don't know if, I just,
1: correct me if that's fair to say or that's fair know. yeah no that's yes. the phrase uh-huh. I
0: think that's the the interpretive phrase you need to hold on to for the book of judges they did what was right in their own eyes. It's not that's not a flattering comment in the Bible. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. gonna, like, okay. say that
1: that's
2: a helpful that was a really helpful distinction that you made early on in your talk, especially because um I remember coming across the description of rape in the Bible and just kind of being surprised that that was there. Yeah. Um, and I can't remember what book of Bible it was in, but um did did your um books Talk about that, like other than just like why do you think those words are good, other than just
0: be like this is not good? There, do you think there any other reason why? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the Bible, the Old Testament especially, it's a lot of theology by story, mm-hmm. and so you're, it's usually I think similar to what Ben was saying, usually it, like these kinds of things are described to say, look how bad the situation was, but. But it, the the reason starts, you know, sometimes years or generations before that, and so you're seeing the outworking of what it means to turn from God and to, to worship idols or to abandon His ways. That this is the kind of thing that happens, and it's um, but uh, certainly rape is never approved of in the Bible. It's only condemned and, and expressed as a look how terrible this is.
2: Um The passage um, that you mentioned where, where Jesus um, describes Moses' divorce law, he, uh, uh, Moses allowed a divorce because of men's hardness of heart. Do you know whether both either there or in the passage, in, in actually Moses' divorce, divorce law, whether the word men is on air? Is is it male because men's hearts were so hard? Because that was the situation. I mean, women were being abused or being... Yeah were being dumped, you know, for any reason and that's what the the Sadducees were or the the rabbis were arguing with Jesus about, well, a man can divorce his wife for any reason, just chuck her. And um, so I just wonder if that if that word is anthropos, is it is it because people's hearts were so hard or men's hearts were so hard because it literally was men's Heart. So I was, it was yeah. I didn't, in the didn't in the, the
0: actual there. verse, I didn't see it was the oh, yeah, the I, I, men's I heart, was, but I, I, will, I want to go back. Yeah, that was my question as I was look, re looking at it today. I was like, uh, because it's definitely protecting women exactly. back there. It was protecting them from just being left without a certificate of divorce. Right. So then they were typically forced into prostitution. Right. And uh, so it was a protective thing for right. women.
3: Matthew is there? Oh, it is. It is it,
0: is it? okay? Uh, okay. Yeah.
2: Thank you. That's I thought it was, but I would, I'm not a Greek scholar. Okay.
0: Sorry. oh yes
4: you no, quoted uh, Deuteronomy talking about allowing Israelites to marry a, woman, a woman from a conquered nation
1: yeah.
4: okay. and I'm pretty sure there are several places that forbid exactly yeah. that sort of thing and if I remember right at the end of Nehemiah when he returns and finds that some of the people uh, living near the new temple have intermarried with the Samaritans he as some of them put to death if I remember right for doing that. So there's a you've got to put those two together, right? It's okay to do it in Deuteronomy, and you put them to death in Nehemiah. So I, the issue is that's when it's spoken of in Nehemiah and other places, the, the commanders don't marry them because they'll bring their other gods with them and cause you to go follow you know, yeah. some foreign god. So the issue isn't so much... If, if Deuteronomy is right, that it's okay to do it. It's not marrying a woman that's the terrible thing. It's marrying her and letting her influence your household with her foreign thoughts. Exactly. You need to,
1: to kind of put the whole... Thing
4: put
0: those two together, yeah. And I, yeah, I've heard... I, I need to look into it more closely, but I've heard one argument saying Nehemiah went further than what God would have required him to do according to the law, but... Um, but, yeah, that's, the issue is never, you know, just because they're a different people group. But it's it's always rooted in idolatry. And your, your hearts are going to be taken away by their idols. Yeah.
4: And it's the same, you mentioned Saul. And his not, well, his, he didn't kill the, the king. And he also didn't kill all the animals. He let the, God had said, killed all the animals. And he kept saying, I'll use him for a sacrifice to God later. Yeah. To, that he just he's not dedicated enough to follow everything he's told to do. That's the difference between him and David. Yeah. David's so, so worried about doing everything just the way God wants it. Saul is saying, I've got a better idea. We can use these sheep another day. Yep. Yeah. Because
0: yeah. that's where the um, obedience is better than sacrifice. Yeah. It's, it's emphasized there because I mean probably what was happening is he was trying to reestablish him as himself as a great king. He was trying to say, look, I've got the king on a chain, and look at all these animals I got. And I'm going to throw a party, and you guys are going to start to love me again as a good king. Because his demise was already happening. He was already failing as a king. And uh, but that's, I think there's a lesson there to do um, to obey is better than sacrifice. I have a funny story that's not related to this at all. But I'll uh, I'll just throw it in. We, need, heavy. To to we need some really yeah. yeah. This was when um, I was at uh I was at Dutch Library, I was a helper and my job was to cut the grass and so I was going around cutting everybody's grass and then there was uh the directors there at the time, Vim and Greta. They had the little space and they had a uh, Hey <laughs> They didn't recognize you until uh good to see you. <laughs> um anyway, so they had this like little square patch of grass and I was like, you know what? I'm just gonna do the, I'm just gonna be a good Samaritan, I'm gonna cut their grass for them. And, uh, and so I go on there, I'm cutting it, and as I go to the corner, I pull away the, the lawnmower, and I see, oh no, I cut this, um this flower down. And I thought, shoot, that's not good. I always, you could just see like half a leaf. Mm. I thought, oh, that doesn't look good. So, I, I went to tea break, and I thought, I, it was Greta at the time, and I thought, well, you know, she's a libre worker, she's gonna be generous and kind. And, <laughs> Uh-oh. I tell her what I did, and uh she's like, wait, first you cut the grass? uh You know, we put the seed on it, it's going to die, you know, it needed to be a certain length. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> and then I was like, and then you know that thing in the corner, there's a little plant, and she's like... Oh, you mean the one that was like from South Africa? My friend gave me. Oh, yeah. It's like precious. And I was like, oh, man. I, like, I cut it down. Yeah, it's dead. It's done. And she's like, what? And she was so upset. And I was so upset. And then uh, so I learned like uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. <laughs> that was the moral of the story. But then I went. I They had bicycles there. And I drove. To every flower shop I could for to try to for weeks to find and find a flower that was the same. And I finally found one, ordered it. Then the other one survived. Oh, so then she got two and now we're best buds. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All is well. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but obey. It's better than sacrifice. Dick.
3: I wondered about the Nehemiah passage thing. So yeah. That's right after the restoration, isn't right. it? After they've just been the cause of the Compromise with all the foreign gods. They've just been taken to Babylon and 75 years, whatever. At last, they come back and they're trying to reconstruct things. And uh, I've often thought that sometimes verdicts were given that were instructive, that were especially giving, making people, making examples of people. Uh, in, in a particular setting. I think of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, good grief. Uh, what, what a severe punishment they got. Uh, that's not because the death penalty to anyone who tells a lie to a church leader or something like that. Uh, but it was somehow, uh, you know, it says everybody feared the Lord after that. Uh, so I think sometimes God intervenes to give a to give especially an exemplary kind of judgment uh, at a certain time. And and certainly they would have needed that, because that's the very thing that had taken them off for this 75 years of captivity and destruction of their whole nation. Mm -hmm. And so if they come back and start doing the very thing that had caused it to happen in the first place, Mm -hmm. then you can see there was some real attempt to disincentivize that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I, know, that's
2: just yeah. well, I wonder if that would be parallel. If that would be the reason why the, the guy that that tried to steady the the cart that was carrying the Ark of the Covenant, you know, back when they were bringing it back to Jerusalem and they were carrying it on a cart, they were carrying it the way they weren't meant to carry it. They would they would not obey the law in yep. terms of how to really respect the Ark, the presence of God. And they're just pushing it along in the cart, and it starts to topple over, and some guy reach and he dies because touching the same kind of. The fear of the fear of the Lord. This
0: is not. It's not buddy buddy. Yeah, Yeah. this is yeah. I agree. Any others? All right. Yeah. Well, next week will be uh, Jesus and the cross. So looking at. What's going on in the Gospels then, but also what's going on in the Book of Revelation? Cause that's, uh, how does Jesus conquer there too? Cause that you've got the imagery of the Old Testament, but then also you're informed by the Gospels too. So how are we going to come to terms with that? Thanks for coming. Thanks yeah, for the discussion. So yep.